The Money Show. Business Unusual. With Colin Cullis. Cold War 2.0. Colin Cullis, is it here? It, it may be, uh, Bruce. And so this evening, I'm hoping to see if I can answer why Ukraine, why now? Um, because I, I, maybe it's just me. And there's a big disclaimer here. Whenever I read about um, the build-up to previous wars, it always appears as if, well, the outcome could easily be predicted. You could see how those significant events, you know, obviously would result in in that particular uh, war taking place. And I always wondered, did, did people at the time not realize it? How did they how did they miss this was all happening? And no, there's a the question, there's a movie on Netflix at the moment. I haven't managed to watch it, but it's based on a book by what's his name? Is it Richard Harris called Munich? And it's the this frenetic run-up to World War II. And I, I've read the book, um, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see how the movie handles it. But it's just so bleedingly obvious, I suppose, because you know the outcome. Um, but it's just this... Uh, this Robert Harris is the author's name. Um, it, it's just this inevitable path to warfare. And you see all of the signals, they present themselves. But human nature is that thing where, and uh, Chamberlain and others, um, history paints Chamberlain as a bit of a twit. I think the book is a bit kinder to him as, you know, just an, an appeaser. But he desperately wanted to avoid conflict. Um, but yeah, you can see it coming. And I, I, I think a lot of people are seeing. Um, you know, the, in Afrikaans, there's a saying, I don't know if you know what it means, but haka here comes big, here comes ah. big trouble. Um, you know, and uh, and I think, you know, there is a risk of the haka here scenario playing out between Russia and Ukraine. There is. And, and for me, there's a parallel as well between the situation between China and Taiwan, because there, there again, you can see there is a very obvious objective, and there is certainly uh, an ability from China to to do this. And then the question is, what does the rest of the world think if it were to do that? And in this case now, um, at the moment, it's if, if Russia were to look to take parts or all of the Ukraine, how much of a issue is that to the rest of the world that they would then go and intervene, even though, you know, Ukraine as an ally of Europe or NATO and all the rest of it is not, you know, it's not part of it. So, it's sort of like going to help somebody who's in trouble when is it worth your while getting involved versus not getting involved and it you know blowing up into something much bigger uh, and the french president this week uh, quite a few of the heads of european countries had gone to sort of meet with putin and have a conversation but um the french president going to have that conversation looking to perhaps be a bit more placatory, say, hey, let's see what we can make a plan. You know, that might have been seen as the overtures that Chamberlain might have been making to Hitler uh, previously, thinking, well, he seemed like a reasonable man. His his requests weren't completely, uh, you know, without foundation, given historical and cultural things, et cetera, et cetera. So we get caught up in this uh, looking very close and maybe not looking very far, or worse, uh, thinking, I'm sure it'll sort out when it doesn't. But this is business unusual rather than politics unusual. So the, <laughs> the point I want to try and raise is that this political situation has an impact on, of course, the global economy. And for South Africans, if they're wondering, what has this got to do with us? Well, our fuel price increases that we're seeing and likely to see sustained come from those very tensions because of the amount of uh, you know energy that gets shipped from Russia via Ukraine to Europe, and if that becomes more volatile, then we have to rely on other sources, and you know there's perhaps a, a limited amount of it, and so the prices go up. All of this set atop you know a very fragile economy anyway, a pandemic, and the potential for all these other things. So that's the sort of context that made me think. I wonder if it's worth our while having a look at it. And typically, this time of the year, many businesses are either reviewing or, or, or 
busy with their strategies for the next two years or next year, next five years. And a bit like our conversation last week around inflation, is that if, they, if the amount of inflation is within a, an acceptable limit that you can plan a year or two by taking it as, an, as a given, then you can make a strategy. But if the inflation, as we were discussing uh, last week, is about 50%, well, all bets are off. Basically, you, you're constantly making new strategies and ultimately businesses aren't there to keep making strategy. They're there to implement strategy. But when you can't implement the strategy because it changes too much, uh, well, then all bets are off. Everybody pulls back in uh, and, 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 and nothing really kind of works. And so even in, you know, for, the, for Sona tomorrow, the president has to work on a, a certain number of facts about the state of the world and what he can expect in terms of global growth and access to markets and investment and all these other good things. And right now, it doesn't look like a very easy thing for him to predict, even if he wanted the best for South Africa. So that's the kind of context. And I thought if I could give a, a little bit of a history, a very potted history, and a very simplified history, I must say, um, then perhaps uh, other South Africans, businesses in general, might just keep an eye on this a little closer, uh, understanding where the, maybe the key developments and points might be uh, to see where it goes and, and be better at responding. And the first thing I think very optimistically I can say is that uh, it does appear that um, despite the posturing and the rhetoric, uh, the, the tensions have built to a level where it seems less likely now that they will be acted upon than not acted upon. Because to do so now uh, would, would trigger a, a very specific response from a, a, you know, many world powers who've already said, look, we, we're going to draw a line in the sand somewhere. So it appears Putin has played his card and is now looking to see how much he can get out of it. But here's how we got here. And it's interesting, just mildly interesting, that today happens to be the anniversary of what um, historians have said was the start of the Cold War, because it was a speech given by Joseph Stalin, one of his first public speeches after the end of the Second World War, so the 9th mm -hmm. of February, 1946, radio um, address that he gave in Russian, uh, but translated and interpreted by European, American, uh, Western allies, as it were, uh, as being the start of a definite sort of inevitable war that was coming with the Soviet Union. He, he actually said, and I'm giving you sort of the translation here, um, that it'd be wrong to think that the Second World War broke out accidentally or as a result of blunders committed by certain statesmen, although blunders were certainly committed. As a matter of a fact, the war broke out as the inevitable result of the development of world economic and political forces on the basis of present-day monopolistic capitalism. Yeah. Now, that is a sentiment that I think a lot of socialist countries and probably a lot of South Africans would say, yeah, we can identify when capitalism goes too far, it pushes people to a position where they say, there is nothing left for me. I definitely will rise up or definitely do something uh, against this regime or against what is happening to me now. To be fair, the same thing has happened in communist countries uh, and, and generally get dealt with a little differently. CNN did a documentary some years ago and, and happened to get a take from uh, Stalin's, uh, one of the foreign ministry uh, officials, and his translator, his official translator, uh, about what he thought uh, Stalin was referring to at the time. Here's what he had to say. Stalin didn't say anything new or different in that speech. He said what he had always believed, that with imperialism and capitalism, war was inevitable. And that sentiment has sort of ratcheted up over time to where we are now, going right the way back to after the Second World War, uh, part of Germany was uh, sort of um, managed by the Allies, um, France, uh, 
Britain and, and the US, and a part of it by the Russia, by Russia. Yep. Uh, and because Berlin was in the eastern part of the part occupied or uh, managed by Russia, Berlin itself was also divided into two. Um, the Allies had combined their bits and managed it as one block, and Russia managed on its own. What I didn't know is that people were free to move initially between the two the two sides. And because America wasn't as negatively affected by the war itself, they could supply quite a lot of goods into West Berlin, uh, which for those living in East Berlin would say, well, there's not a whole lot happening in East Berlin, and the Russians weren't bringing in a whole lot because they were really uh, hard done by, by by fighting in that war. So people sort of started seeing what was what was available to those people living in uh, in West Berlin as being preferable to what the Russians could offer. This inside now what had become you know a, a Russian state of East Germany, and that continued after a while until um, effectively the the tensions between the two sides got to the point where tanks sitting on the border were threatening to open fire if if something didn't give, uh, and thankfully they did give, and and the two powers the the allies at the, at the time uh, you know besides Russia and Russia had realized that 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 direct tension would would definitely result. In a, in a significant war, atomic weapons were now a thing. Both sides had them, and so they started these sort of proxy wars, areas of influence that they create elsewhere in the world. Vietnam, Korea, and you know South Africa was involved in the in the play in Angola between you know the communist sort of elements and, and looking to establish communism there versus to keep keep it out. Uh, it all came to head with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where again America and Russia were seconds away potentially from pressing buttons. Uh, to seriously, if not end the world, call all sorts of trouble. Um, that finally the tension started uh, dropping. Uh, changes in, in in the Russian sort of uh, presidents, etc., led to um, Mikhail Gorbachev and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And this is the the next sort of key moment because when that actually happened, Vladimir Putin, the current Russian president, was um, based in East Germany. He was a KGB operative over there and saw what the world looked like when those with supposed political power were not trusted or didn't no longer believed or feared by the people that they would simply rise up and overthrow them. And, and so I think in some respects, he said to himself, probably that this is something he would need to avoid if he was ever to aspire to run a country and make it successful. Uh, and, and over time, you saw how we looked to create a very strong hold on power uh, and to ensure that uh, the wealth that was created and available would, would be distributed in a way to keep everybody sort of sweet. That came to head in 2014 in Ukraine, where the situation there saw his loyalist uh, leaders of Ukraine overthrown um, by, by people in Ukraine, mostly in Western Ukraine, um, even though he had quite a lot of sympathetic and there's a long history of sort of Ukraine and Russia, Belarus, they're all sort of a very similar kind of cultures and, and languages even, uh, very similar. And that's where we got that um, sort of separatist fighting. And even now, uh, the area around Donetsk is still sort of controlled by separatists, even though it is still part of Ukraine, uh, and then the, the annexation of Crimea. Uh, and, and that sort of went quite a little bit, possibly Donald Trump's years, uh, and some of the uh, yet to be seen what exactly he was trying to get uh, to happen in, in Ukraine, but he wasn't looking to um, inflame anything over there. So perhaps that's why things went a little quiet, although maybe inadvertently, he was pretty critical of NATO, saying they weren't doing their, their, their part, they were useless, they weren't spending their money on defense they were supposed to, which may be... Uh, inadvertently led to them actually getting a little more prepared for a situation like this, which again, wouldn't work in Putin's favor. Uh, but then now the, the the timing, perhaps, you've got a new US president, he's got more than his hands full dealing with uh, the US economy and the, and the divisions inside the US, that a good time perhaps is to push on that a little bit more. And so earlier this year, uh, Putin basically told NATO uh, three things that he demanded they do. One, 
never let Ukraine become part of NATO. It isn't, so maybe that wouldn't be too hard of a thing to accept. Uh, but also to say that um, they need to stop all military uh, presences in um, the Eastern Bloc countries. Now, since 1997, 13 former Eastern Bloc countries had joined NATO. So on that basis, you could say, well, that's, that certainly is uh, moving a lot more of NATO's influence around Russia and, and the potential implications of that. And, and currently we have Russian troops sort of massed on the Ukrainian border near to where that separatist region is held. Uh, they're in Crimea, which is just to the south of, of the main part of, of um, uh, Ukraine. Uh, and then there is a major river, the, the Dnieper River, which to the, to the east of it has probably the most support, the most uh, likelihood that you're going to find Ukrainians with a strong identity, identify with Russia, that if Russia were to do something, they'd probably be less um, resistance than if they had to do it further west in Ukraine, where you know the influences are more from Poland and elsewhere. So this is the situation we find ourselves in now. The degree to which uh, he might get some concessions from NATO, it's okay, stop the expansion, or maybe even withdraw a little bit, we wait and see. Uh, but a, an article he wrote last year, a long article, a historical document talking about how there are one people with one culture really did set us up to say, well, that was his line in the sand for what he was looking to do. And it's now grown to this. So the, the, the hope is um, us getting involved, people discussing UN and wherever else uh, they, they can, will we'll just see enough pressure brought to bear to say, find a solution. Don't let it get any further uh, versus it does get out of hand. And despite then the, the, the best efforts and everybody's keenness to not have the situation unravel, uh, it sometimes gets beyond us. And, you know, something that we really don't want to have to contemplate could be upon mm. us. Well, if today is the anniversary of Stalin effectively declaring the Cold War. When did Churchill make his famous Iron Curtain speech? How long did it take Churchill after that to make the famous Iron Curtain speech? It was it was some years later, but that also was a no, very specific thing. It wasn't. Oh, it was no. It was. I think it was probably in direct response to the speech today in 1946. Uh, Westminster College, Fulton, uh, in the United States. Um, Ch Churchill from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Um, and yeah, it was on the 5th of March 1946. So less than a month after. Um, the speech made by Stalin, Churchill had analysed it sufficiently well and coined that phrase while on a, 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 a speaking tour, I think, because he, by then he was out of um, the out of Downing Street. Um, he was on a speaking tour and, yeah, he coined the phrase Iron Curtain um, less than a month after the speech made by Joseph Stalin, which essentially was the declaration of the Cold War. Colin Cullis, thank you very much indeed.